Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 243 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of Scott Graytech from Transparency USA and Erica uh, Hanachek, the Director of Government Affairs for the FACT Coalition, and to talk about the recent passage of the Enablers Act, uh, a pretty far-reaching uh, anti-money laundering and anti-corruption bill, the, the legislation that was just passed by the House and uh, is likely to pass the Senate and uh, get enacted uh, this year. Anyways, welcome everybody. Uh, Mike Volkoff here in sunny, beautiful Sicily, uh, still enjoying the summer. Uh, hope you're enjoying yours as well um, and getting some time to relax and to enjoy family and friends some. Um, um, anyway, uh, I'm always glad to have uh, Scott Graytech and Erica Hanacek here. Uh, they keep us up to date on anti-corruption legislation in the United States. And uh, we wanted to take a look at the Enablers Act, which uh, you know tackles the issue of going after gatekeepers for the U.S. financial system, lawyers, accountants, trustees, uh, corporate uh, formation agents, all of that. Uh, and so this is uh, part of the effort to rein in corruption and money laundering. So uh, before we get started, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Diligent. Diligent is the time-tested, award-winning provider of automated governance, risk, and compliance solutions. For over 20 years, Diligent has helped boards and C-suites to design and implement effective governance practices through its market-leading board application. Diligent has now expanded its offerings to include risk, compliance, and audit solutions. Building on these new and exciting capabilities, Diligent now offers the critical capability to connect boards, C-suite, risk, compliance, and audit teams to promote purpose-driven leadership. Building on this capability, Diligent provides a full suite of complementary services, including risk management, ethics and compliance, environmental, social, and governance, and proactive auditing strategies and practices. Diligent solutions enable companies to implement robust corporate governance to mitigate and manage risk, create a culture of ethics and compliance, ensure that company controls are audit-ready, and implement tailored and responsive ESG solutions. If interested in exploring Diligent's unique complement of solutions, please reach out to Diligent at its website, www.diligent.com. I'm really happy to welcome back uh, two of our favorite guests. Uh, and uh, we have Scott Graytech and Erica Hanacek. Scott is uh, the Advocacy Director at Transparency International USA. Erica Hanacek is the Director of Government Affairs at the FACT Coalition, and uh, I always know when I hear from them that we have something positive to talk about, and today I thought it'd be great to uh, talk about the passage by the House uh, of Representatives and sort of the prospects for what's called the Enablers Act, and we're really happy to have Scott Eric, and Erica here Thank you both for joining us and for our listeners and talking to us about the Enablers Act. Welcome to both of you today. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having us. 
Well, let me turn it over to you just to first, uh, I think I've written a little bit about this on my blog, but I think you guys obviously have been living it. And I know what it's like when you're trying to get something done on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, but can you guys sort of set the stage for us, either one of you on sort of the Enablers Act, uh, what it generally does and why it's so significant from your standpoint? Yeah, we'd be happy to. Thanks, Michael. And great to talk with you again. So big picture, uh, my organization, Transparency International, is the oldest and largest organization in the world fighting corruption. And we're an international organization because, as you know, uh, oftentimes corruption requires moving money out of the country that it was stolen from and into other countries in order to move, hide, and grow that money. So the United States has become a go-to destination for corrupt funds that leaders in different parts of the world are stealing from their people and trying to make a good return on. If you pick a point on the globe, a major corruption scandal in the last few years, whether that's stories that we heard from the Pandora Papers last October to scandals like 1MDB in Malaysia or involving Isabel dos Santos in Angola and her oil company, or uh, Theodore Obiang in Equatorial Guinea. What we see in all of these examples is the involvement, the complicity of American, what we call enablers of this corruption. This is a class of professional service providers. Think certain lawyers, certain accountants, folks who form or register companies in the United States, folks who form trusts in the United States, for folks who manage or advise or consult others on their money. Uh, they have all been key players in each of these big time corruption scandals that have moved dirty money from other parts of the world into the United States. So the Enablers Act is a bipartisan bill uh, that has finally been included in the House National Defense Bill, which as you mentioned was passed just last month. Um, it is an effort that would empower the Treasury Department to require these types of enablers to adopt certain anti-money laundering procedures in order to make sure that they are not being used by corrupt actors to accomplish these goals. And it gives Treasury a pretty broad menu. Uh, there's a whole host of anti-money laundering procedures Many that you know typical American banks have to do now, like collecting information about who is actually behind a company, if the enabler is working with a company, to setting up uh, thorough anti-money laundering programs, to conducting full due diligence on their customers to, to make sure that they're not on sanctions lists, for example, now, uh, to filing suspicious activity reports with Treasury. And so by giving Treasury the power to do this, to regulate different types of enablers with different AML procedures, we think we can turn these folks that have been exploited, abused by corrupt actors in different parts of the world into actual allies in this fight. They are on the front lines of this corrupt activity. They are the gatekeepers, if you will, to the US economy and the US financial system. And this bill, you know, by requiring them to have some of these anti-money laundering procedures that other financial institutions, other banks have, we think would be able to stop a lot of the flow of this dirty and corrupt money into the United States. Well, that's interesting. And Erica, from your standpoint and the FACT Coalition, um, is this sort of the big picture that you see as well? Or is there anything else that you would call out 
in terms of the Enablers Act that you think was really important? Absolutely. The United States uh, and recently uh, was named the largest supplier of financial secrecy in the world by something called the Financial Secrecy Index. Uh, the provision of anonymous U.S. shell companies is obviously a large component of this. That's why uh, our coalition, which represents more than 100 state, national, and international organizations committed to combating harmful, corrupt financial practices, have gotten together to support the passage of legislation to tackle that problem of anonymous U.S. entities. But of course, uh, whether wittingly or unwittingly, there are U.S. gatekeepers, as Scott has laid out, that help uh, corrupt actors uh access the U.S. financial uh, system and sometimes set up these entities. So, you know, one of the things that's top of mind for us, especially in light of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, is how some of these funds make their way into the United States, Uh, again, sometimes through these gatekeepers. And so, um, you know, just for instance, uh, there uh, is a case uh, in which Oleg Deripaska used a U.S. formation agent to help him set up an anonymous company so he could buy a $15 million mansion in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, there's another case in which uh, a Putin crony, uh, Suleiman Kerimov, used a Delaware trust formation agent to set up a trust uh, in the United States to hold $1 billion anonymously in assets. Uh, and it really highlights the national security implications of being able to provide uh better insights into how actors are accessing the U.S. financial system. But there's also, uh, you know, tax implications that that we're thinking about as, you know, we also think about how, uh, you know, bad actors use offshore tax havens, which sometimes aren't even offshore at all, but are in our own backyard uh, to evade taxes and commit tax fraud. Um, you know, money is intentionally hidden beyond the view of tax authorities. And there are serious revenue implications from this that hinder uh, our efforts to better resource uh, efforts to protect the integrity of the U.S. financial system. Uh, The U.S. Treasury uh, has done analysis and shown that legal entities are used in what they call a substantial portion of tax uh, tax evasion and tax fraud cases. So while the U.S. is actually ahead of the ball um, compared to many other countries, in identifying um, and working with tax professionals to fight tax evasion uh, through reporting regimes that get at certain ownership uh, information, enablers style style due diligence would be helpful where certain information reporting isn't complete. So for instance, um, when individuals use complex structuring or uh, do transactional planning for tax evasion purposes in a way that involves unrelated third-party advisors, like those filing tax returns. So mm-hmm. uh, just to provide additional context as, as to why uh, the, the legislation that Scott has talked about is just so important from the U.S. Uh, financial perspective. Yep. No, I, that makes total sense. Um, you know, looking at the big picture for a second, there it seems to me like there are two large uh, sort of forces here at work. One is, and I think we've talked about this before, was uh, the countering corruption uh, national strategy, which, uh, you know, this administration put together and elevated the sort of anti-corruption battle, um, you know, to a national security type issue. And I recall in that, and I may be wrong, but I recall uh, in that that there was uh, some mention and focus of the importance of uh, going after the gatekeepers or the enablers, if you want to talk about that. And then the second to me seems to be, you know, sort of the reaction 
of the enforcement agencies and everybody with regard to the invasion uh, by the Russians into Ukraine and their access to money uh, all around the globe. Um, do you guys, do you share that in terms of that this is sort of in line with both of those uh, incentives? And that's maybe why we have such a broad um, sort of uh, bipartisan support for this. Yeah, I can take the first. So interestingly, about two months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as you said, the administration puts out this 40-page document about how it is committing to fighting foreign corruption. And in there, it says specifically that there are holes in our regulatory framework, in our anti-money laundering systems here that allow different kinds of service providers, it names lawyers, accountants, folks who incorporate foreign companies, where they are basically not required to know whether or not the folks they are working with are corrupt actors, criminal enterprises, drug cartels, human traffickers, you name it. They hide behind that veil of ignorance in order to provide these services for these folks and to make money from them. So the strategy pinpoints that this is an area that the administration is committed to fixing. And then just a few months later, about a month after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the US Treasury Department comes out with its national strategy as it does every year. And as the number one item that it calls out uh, as a proposed fix to the US's you know, ways to protect the US financial system, it has closing these loopholes that allow enablers, gatekeepers uh, to not have to know who they are working with. So this was both on the radar uh, and you know, core to the Biden administration's response to foreign corruption before the invasion of Ukraine. And I think we've seen in so many ways that Erica can speak to, it has only gained greater attention and greater focus because of the ability of the United States financial system through these loopholes to have examples like this of Oleg Deripaska and others who were able to move their money inside our system and hide their dirty assets. Right, right. What do you think, Erica? Do you, do you share that sort of perspective? I mean, it is kind of amazing that those two forces came together so quickly. The timing couldn't be more urgent to tackle this problem. You mentioned the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the international community gathered together in an unprecedented fashion to, to track, freeze, and seize Russian oligarch assets as a way to respond to the human rights abuses that are happening in Ukraine. Um, with the establishment of the International Repo Task Force, which is this mm -hmm. multilateral institution um, that relies on reporting not only by financial institutions, but by non-financial business professionals to understand who actually owns these assets. Again, we're seeing these big stories in the news about how uh, law enforcement's tracking down Russian oligarch yachts in foreign locales. Right. Uh, but you can't find the yachts if you don't know who owns them. And so this information is absolutely critical to that um, to that effort to turn off the spigot for uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. But in, in so many ways, the U.S. is really lagging behind um, the rest of the world in these issues, um, especially its partners in the International Repo Task Force. The United States is actually in the last 10 percent of countries that doesn't require uh you know, these business professionals, these gatekeepers to have anti-money laundering obligations. 
Um, in 2016, the International Anti-Money Laundering Standard Center, the Financial Ask and Action Task Force, um, right. did an evaluation of the U.S. anti-money laundering framework and found two core deficiencies. One, you've already mentioned, uh, Michael, is the um, the lack of visibility into shell companies established in the United States. But Congress took action in a bipartisan way last uh, bipartisan way last year to pass the Corporate Transparency Act, um, which would uh, effectively end the abuse of U.S. anonymous shell companies. That's currently being implemented by the Treasury Department in the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. But the second deficiency is exactly what we're talking about now, um, closing these loopholes uh, through anonymous, um, you know, entity formation and, and working with these gatekeepers to actually understand um, how money is moving through the U.S. system. And some of these uh, loopholes we've been talking about closing for 20 years since 9-11. Um, since so it really is time to act to, to be able to pass this through Congress and, and require some of these financial uh, professionals to have um, anti-money laundering obligations. Yeah, let me, and and I hate to, you know, beat a dead horse on the Corporate Transparency Act, but just from my perspective, the fact that and if you sort of peel apart every FCPA case, every sort of money laundering case, uh, you inevitably see shell companies set up all over and often uh, in the United States, by the way. Let's not, you know, that we're set up through, uh, you're not required to disclose beneficial ownership here when you form a company in Delaware, you form one in Wyoming, you form one in South Dakota, whatever. Uh, in the United States has been you know, behind the curve. You, I mean, we see now some databases over in the EU, uh, particularly in the UK, that's starting. So, look, that was a great thing that that, ha that when the Corporate Transparency Act was passed. But this gets at, I, I mean, not just shell companies. I mean, this is, I, I mean, we've been talking about this issue for a long time, and uh, there are just too many people who come in who facilitate this. And let's be honest, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, not to beat uh, us lawyers down, but there are a lot of legal professionals who will, you know, practice in this area and they should have an AML program. They should have due diligence requirements to know who they're really dealing with. And by the way, if they're doing their job, they should be uh, held accountable for that. And I'll tell you, my thing is once this gets enacted, once you bring one case, once FinCEN or DOJ bring you know case together or whatever against one of the enablers, you'll see a shockwave through the whole industry. And that's, that's what we want. We want to send that message because look, there's, there's too many situations where the enablers can quote unquote, turn a blind eye, but they really know what's going on. Uh, there's just too much financial incentive for them to just uh, help these people out. So I see this as sort of a one-two punch from the shell company uh, legislation and requirements. Um, I will tell you this, and I'd like to hear your views on this as well. I mean, we're putting a lot on FinCEN right now. We're putting a lot of, you know, the Corporate Transparency Act and now the Enablers Act um, and we've got to make sure that FinCEN is ready to go and ready to, you know, they, they already did the, uh, the the customer due diligence rules in the United States, what was that, two, three years ago. So are, are they capable of this? Or you guys have any concerns about that? And, and what do you think about my one-two punch analogy? 
Yeah, I can take the first part, Michael. It's a super good point. So the, the Corporate Transparency Act basically says, you know, if you form or register a company, an LLC, any kind of similar financial vehicle in the United States, you now have to report into a confidential database of treasury who the actual owners or the folks who control that company are. Uh, what it doesn't require is that you do any sort of background check right. or other anti-money laundering procedure to make sure that these folks are not criminals, that they are not giving you funds that were stolen from uh, the citizens of their country back home. So to give you an example of how this works. You know, I mentioned Theodore Obiang earlier. He's the yeah. vice president of Equatorial Guinea, right? The, the son of the country's authoritarian president. You know, he basically went to American attorneys uh, who set up these shell companies uh, on his behalf. And then he used those attorneys' law firm accounts to move millions of dollars out of Equatorial Guinea through those law firm accounts into those shell companies in California, went on to use them to buy, you know, luxury sports cars, mansions, and glove, uh, all sorts of just uh, preposterous wastes of money, uh, you know, taking taxpayer money for it from his right. own people. But, you know, when those lawyers set up uh, those shell companies, when the Corporate Transparency Act is on the books, yes, they will have to declare Theodore Obiang as the beneficial owner. But it doesn't say to them and it doesn't force them uh, to look into whether or not the money that he is providing to them or the services that he's asking of them, if he's doing that because he's a criminal, because he's on a sanctions list, because there are credible allegations of corruption against him in his home country, they don't have to do any sort of look back on who their yeah. client is. So yes, the CTA will allow Treasury, law enforcement, et cetera, to know that Theodore OBN controls these companies, but it still doesn't necessarily stop the flow of that money at the outset. If you have the Enablers Act on the books, those same attorneys, if Treasury implements this the way we want them to, would have to perform due diligence and say, okay, who is Theodore Obiang? Where is he getting his money from? He's obviously a politically exposed person. That raises the risk that there could be a you know, criminal activity like money laundering involved. And it stops the flow of that money at the outset. It says that the United States is essentially a no-fly zone for corrupt money. And it means that if he wants to pull off these crimes, he's going to have to go somewhere else, but it's not going to be the United States. That's a great point, too, that that now um, there's no look back. So, Will, do you expect that FinCEN, for example, will uh, put these enablers under a SARS filing requirement, you know, to file a suspicious activity report? Or... Uh, or what do you what do you all think of that? Do you think that'll come out of this, uh, assuming it's all enacted? Well, I want I want to make sure Erica can speak to your FinCEN point. Oh early, yeah, go that's, ahead. that's that's huge. But I'll just say for some of so the 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 um the way that the Enablers Act is set up is it gives Treasury discretion. Okay. To look at different kinds of enablers, it says you know basically if they are a high risk type of enabler, like a person who forms a company through which money can be moved into the United States, that's a high risk enabler. They should correspondingly, we hope, have the obligation to file SARS. Uh, there are other types of enablers that don't pose as significant risks, but who should be you know collecting beneficial ownership information, right. or maybe they should have you know, an anti-money laundering program or officer to some extent with their company, but they don't need the full suite of AML protections that enablers 
provides as options. So treasurer, the experts, they have the discretion to assign those different responsibilities well, based on risk. Yeah, that's the way to do it instead of having Congress sort of mandate it, um, you know, for certain, uh, let let the regulators take care of that. But anyways, uh, Erica, on my FinCEN point, I, I mean, I am concerned a little bit here that, you know, we're putting a lot on their shoulders lately. Um, what What do you think about that? FinCEN is becoming increasingly one of the most important uh, bureaus of the Treasury Department, but also corners of the U.S. administration that uh, in the responsibilities it's been given and the role it now plays with the uh, financial pressure campaign on Russia in light of Ukraine to actually become um, one of our key lock points on being able to enforce U.S. national security objectives. You're right that it's been given a huge mission. Um, and is really central to the U.S. strategy on countering corruption that was issued by the administration last December. Um, as we look at everything that's on FinCEN's plate, whether it be the Corporate Transparency Act, um, rules that it's uh, pursuing to clean up money laundering in the U.S. real estate sector or through U.S. private investment, um, it it really does need funding to be able to get all this done. Um, the acting director of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network came before Congress this spring and said that funding was the number one most critical uh, roadblock to achieving most of its uh, goals, whether it be with the Corporate Transparency Act or these other rulemaking. So Congress has a massive role to play uh, in empowering our nation's financial crime fighters to actually be able to tack tackle modern threats um, that we're seeing increasingly become more relevant um, you know, in the 21st century. Um, you know, especially as uh, we think about just the scale of the problem, Treasury estimates that uh, funds equaling 2% of U.S. GDP uh, move through the U.S. Uh, economy each year that are dirty, illicit, corrupt money. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, FinCEN and others only get about 0.0006% uh, of GDP. Oh. Um, to be able to protect that same system in the U.S. economy. So the Ukraine crisis has only really underscored the urgency of this problem. Congress um, and the White House uh, are working together to try to increase the budget. The White House has proposed a 31% increase um, in the annual budget of FinCEN. Um, the House has um, put forward um, appropriations language that that would give uh, that, that level. The Senate's going to be a little bit more of the holdup, though. So um, to the extent possible, the Senate should really agree and work with the, the House and White House to pass that number. Well, I, look, I totally agree. Um, and I would say, like, I mean, besides some, some of uh, the major projects you've mentioned for FinCEN, I mean, there's an increase now in the sharing of uh, foreign uh, financial information among law enforcement agencies that I think FinCEN is involved in. Uh, in terms of other provisions that have been uh, passed in terms of opening up sort of information sharing uh, among uh, uh, law enforcement agencies around the world. Um, one other point I wanted to go back, Erica, that you had mentioned was uh, the repo task force, which, uh, you know, I've, I've written about and spoken about all sort of all of the uh, efforts that have been put in place by the U.S. government and internationally in the sanctions battle. Uh, that's going on with regard to Russian assets and, you know, tracking them down for seizing, seizure purposes. And um, 
what and I wanted to ask you in terms of the re, repo task force. To me, this is really something that I think is going to have benefits not just in fighting money laundering, but also in in uh, anti corruption. Uh, the the battle there as well. In other words, the more that law enforcement coordinates and gets to know each other and works together, I see a lot of benefits coming out of the repo task force uh, that's been set up. And I know we're behind, but I think you know there may be sort of information sharing and learning on our part on uh, some practices that may be even better uh, to learn from other law enforcement agencies around the world who are fighting the battle on AML. Um, what's your sense of the repo task force? Do you think it's a, a been a positive development in, in terms of this battle? The multilateral response as exemplified through the repo task force uh, has been absolutely, I think, game changing um, and mm. shows what international information sharing could really be. Uh, we hear so often from uh, law enforcement partners about how slow some of these processes can can be. You know, there's something um, folks here might be familiar with called a mutual uh, legal assistance treaty, right. an MLAT, the MLAT. process through right. Right. right, the process through which um, law enforcement usually shares this and shares this information. That process can be sometimes a year, eighteen months, two years, just to share one piece of information, and that. You can't really tackle corruption and fight financial crime if you're working on, you know, snail mail equivalents. And so I think one of the um, most important aspects that's come out of the repo task force is to practice and institutionalize systems that are being used for Russia now, but could be expanded out to our efforts to fight financial crime globally. Um, one of the other things that we've heard from partners is um, the efforts to do real-time information sharing in collaboration mm -hmm. with private sector to help inform what their efforts are to make sure that they're providing actionable intelligence to law enforcement so that SARS can be efficient. Um, there's not, uh, you know, in the same way defensive SAR is being filed, that you can actually make sure that the information that's being provided is targeted, useful, um, and can feed into both law enforcement and national security investigations. So I think uh, the International Report Repo Task Force is the first um, real and reinvigoration to try to improve some of these processes at a at an international scale. Yeah, that's terrific. Well. Listen, this is all great news. Uh, congratulations to you both, because I know you were up on the Hill and uh, helping to uh, guide some of this effort. And, you know, I wish you continued good luck with the Senate. I think, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic. I mean, look, this was bipartisan. You had, uh, I think it was Joe Wilson from South Carolina and Malinkowski from uh New Jersey as uh, co-sponsors. So that shows you it's a broad range of uh, people who are in support of this. So um, congratulations to you both. We would love to, you know, stay in touch. And, you know, as the issues come up, please uh, come back and, and we'll have you on again, both you and Scott, Erica. Um, and for before we go, though, just in case uh, somebody wants to reach out to you guys, uh, to talk further about this or to learn how they could help or what else they could do to sort of pursue this. Um, can you guys each give uh, contact info uh, so that any listener wants to reach out to you can do so? Yeah, happy to. And thanks for having us on the program, Michael. Really great yeah. to be able to, to share the news and try and get folks engaged in this fight. I would say if folks do want to get involved in this effort, we're, we're really heating up toward an important month 
the Senate is going to be considering their version of the national defense bill. We are doing everything we can to make sure that the Enablers Act is included in that bill so that it can be maintained through conference and get over the finish line uh, when Congress passes the final defense bill later in the year. Um, our website is us.transparency.org. We have a, a listserv there if you'd like to stay in the loop on our press releases, the resources we put out, our, our other uh, communications products, please sign up there. And if you wanna email me directly, um, you know, would love to talk to you about the campaign. My email is sgreytak, G-R-E-Y-T-A-K at transparency.org. And likewise, um, as we continue to work with uh, our partners, both on enablers and on funding for the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, we'd love to have some uh, support in that. So um, you can reach out to me at uh, ehanachak, H-A-N-I-C-H-A-K at thefactcoalition.org. Uh, that's all our, also our website, thefactcoalition.org, uh, or you could follow us on Twitter for the latest news and updates. Uh, we're at Fact Coalition on Twitter. So thanks well, so much for uh, for reaching out. Okay, Erica, Scott, always great to see you. Always get, great to catch up with you. Thank you again, and uh, we'll stay in touch, and, and good luck in a productive August. A pleasure, Michael. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. What's my